Hello everyone, we hope you're doing great. My name is Bob Mutetagolam, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Harsha Kasuri. So welcome back to the first episode of our new podcast, Grotespurt, the best podcast you'll find on the internet about everything and anything from public policy all the way to cellular physiology. So Harsha, who do we have on today's episode? Well, today we have the privilege of talking to Dr. DJ, who's an assistant professor in psychology at UC San Diego. So we probably won't be able to do Dr. Bamba Muka's research justice just in this introduction, but his lab manipulates genetic circuits in mice to understand the mechanisms that affect social behavior. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Dr. Bamba Muku. Um, so how is California doing right now, you know, with COVID and everything? Well, California is, again, dealing, trying to grapple with uh, coming back to learning, uh, essentially from the perspective of UCSD students. So there's a very big drive to try and get as many people vaccinated as possible so that everyone feels safe when they come back to campus. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, um, so um, looking at the situation very closely with regards to the Delta variant that has, uh, now is now spreading in many parts of the U.S., so we have a cautious view of uh, the next few months, but we're hoping that with the uh, large-scale vaccination that we can limit the further spread of COVID. Yeah, that's really great to hear, especially because um, it's been a very long, uh, almost year and a half now. So yeah, that's really good to hear. So in our community here in Plano, we have a lot of students and children that want to become doctors and scientists. Um, and it's really important uh, that they get the right map so that they can sort of plan out their future. Um, so it'd be really great to sort of hear about your background and how you became um, an assistant professor at UC San Diego. Okay, sure, of course. Um, I think there are many parts to science. Mine is only one of them. So um, I just want to highlight that because I think many of my colleagues come from very different um, uh, backgrounds and they've taken very different paths to science. So mine is just one of them. Uh, I grew up in India. I was born in India and I grew up in India. Uh, and I, I performed undergraduate, I had all of my undergraduate education in India, in, uh, in a city called Chandigarh in the north of India, uh, and then in, in New Delhi as well. Uh, and then I came to the US to uh, do a PhD in neuroscience. So I'm really a molecular neuroscientist by training. Uh, I came to New York City to the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and NYU uh, to perform PhD studies with uh, Dr. Christina Alberini, who is a world expert in neurobiology of memory formation. And so in my PhD, I worked on the molecular mechanisms by which uh, animals, or we mostly work with rats, form new memories. Or how is it that uh, newly learned information gets consolidated or um, strengthened into a memory trace? Um, and so that, that was an interesting period of my life where I was uh, really thinking about larger questions about how the brain gives rise to behavior. And one of the things that struck me uh, in my PhD was that we even though we were studying more uh, uh, higher cognitive concepts like memory, we knew very little about even the most basic survival behaviors, things that animals, a species, do to just survive in the wild and to interact with each other. And I moved to Harvard University uh, to the lab of uh, Dr. Catherine Dulac, uh, who's, who's an expert on the neurobiology of social behavior, to really try to understand how the brain gives rise to the most basic fundamental survival functions. And one of the things that we really wanted to understand was how diverse is the brain. So one of the things we, uh, uh, one question, an open question in neuroscience is how is it that the vast number of cells that the brain contains, uh, billions in the case of humans, give rise to um, 
simple behaviors, but also more complex uh, internal states such as emotions. Uh, and so to start to answer this question, we first need to map out what the connections in the brain are um, as, as a first step. It's not, an, it's, it's not a sufficient step, but it is a necessary step to start to understand how different neurons in different parts of the brain interact with each other and produce behavior. And so to, to and this is an old question, to start to categorize neurons. How do you, how do you categorize neurons? What, what is a neuron type? Now, historically, people have looked at what the neuron looks like. So the shape of the neuron, that's one way to categorize neurons. Another way is to look at what neurons it's connected to, where, it, where, where uh, in the brain it lies. And the third, more modern approach is to look at the genetic makeup of the cell. What are the genes that each neuron expresses? And it turns out that all of the other features of a neuron seem to be determined by the genes that it expresses at different times of life. Um, now, some of the gene, exp gene um, expression programs are transient and some of them are more long lasting. And so what we did was to uh, categorize a, a part of the brain that's important for social behaviors as well as all of your other um, survival functions such as thermoregulation, uh, thirst, feeding, uh, escape from predators, for example, uh, in, in animals, uh, behaviors that you really need to survive in the wild. Uh, and th that's a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. So what we did was to use new uh, gene mapping uh, procedures and ways to uh, understand the genetic makeup of each cell at a very high resolution, uh, which allowed us to now have uh, an idea of the diversity of the brain. And these, this is a project that's been happening in many, uh, uh, any, many other, other labs in many other parts of the world. And so now the challenge is to really try to understand how these, this diversity gives rise to function. And so my path from uh, um, after my PhD was to go and become a postdoctoral fellow uh, in Dr. Catherine Dulac's lab. And that's something that is the general path that people follow in the biological sciences, which is after your undergraduate uh, training, uh, you might perform a few years of research after which you get into a PhD program, which are usually very highly competitive. And then after your PhD, uh, you want to assert independence and really try and show that you can uh, carry a project from start to finish on your own. Uh, and, and that's why many people do what's called a postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, and postdoctoral fellowships vary in the number of years it takes to solve a problem. So you essentially take a, a problem that's important, hopefully, and try to really get to the bottom of it. And once, when you finish answering uh, or fig figuring out how to, uh, what the solution or a partial solution to the problem is, you publish papers or uh, scientific um, reports that uh, detail all of the methodology that you used and the results that you found. And these, uh, and the way it works is that um, you, your, your peers or other scientists judge the work uh, as sufficient for publication. And usually it's a very rigorous peer review process so that people can judge whether you've done the right experiments and suggest new experiments if, you forgo if you've um, missed something. And that it can be a very good way to self-correct the process of science when other people, other very, very good scientists also look at your work. And so one publishes research and then on the basis of that, one applies to become uh, um, an assistant professor or the first um, category of professor um, in, in the academic system. And usually um, that comes with, again, it's a very competitive process. There are many postdoctoral fellows who are applying for jobs. And what you're really trying to do is find a good home for your research program. Uh, find a place where uh, colleagues will uh, encourage and understand the kind of work you're, uh, you're doing, believe in the goals that you have for your research program, and also uh, balance um, 
there are two kinds of research institutions that one can start labs at to do scientific research, uh, and actually more than two kinds. Uh, but broad, broadly, you can work in a medical school where there's very little teaching of undergrads, and or you can work in a university uh, such as UCSD where there's a very large undergraduate population. So teaching is a very large part of um, work at, at UCSD. So you, I, I run a lab where I have PhD students and postdoctoral fellows uh, who uh, work on cutting edge neuroscience research, but I also um, spend a lot of my time teaching undergraduates um, the basics of neuroscience and uh, more advanced courses. Um, and so that's essentially the path to becoming an assistant professor. Uh, it takes many years, um, but it's always exciting. And one doesn't feel the years pass when you're doing interesting work. Yeah, that's really inspiring. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people listening could take some good information from that. So one thing that I wanted to take from that are what are some interesting findings that you might have found as striking from your research that someone who isn't as well versed in behavioral science could understand? So one fascinating thing that I think, one of the things that, I, that made me join Catherine Dulac's lab at Harvard was a fascinating finding from her lab about a very basic question that all of us are interested in, which is why do males and females behave differently? Now, this is a very interesting and profound question perhaps, and it's a very important question to really get to the mechanism of, uh, even in terms of uh, how society views these differences. So the canonical view has been that males behave very differently than females in response to the same sensory cues or the same uh, input, environmental input. And so the dogma in the field many, many decades ago, 50 years ago, was that male brains are fundamentally different from female brains, that males, there are male-specific circuits, neural circuits for male behaviors and female-specific circuits for female behaviors. But what we found over the last several decades is that this is not true at all. Uh, what we found is that there's a complex interplay of hormones and neural circuitry that leads to these differences, which end up actually being quite uh, quantitative and not qualitative. And what I mean by that is that males and females are perfectly capable of displaying the behavior of the opposite sex. It's just the amount of that behavior that's displayed that's different. For example, uh, men are perfectly capable of being good parents. So parenting behavior, which is in many, uh, in, in many dogmatic views thought to be a, a, a female behavior is not really a female behavior. It's something that both um, uh, sexes can perform. There are aspects of the behavior that the female physiology is uh, better uh, designed to perform, but it's not really something that's very, very different. And when it comes to higher cognition, there are very, very few differences or hardly any differences that have been uh, found that are really uh, strikingly different. There's more, mostly a difference that can be attributed to an environmental influences rather than genetic influences. And so one of the interesting things that we uh, found from mouse mice research as well is that sensory systems play an important role in determining maleness or femaleness. And there's a part, there's a pheromone sensing circuit in mice, which when you get rid of it, males start to show um, female typical behaviors and females start to show male typical behaviors at a, at a very high frequency. And so one of the things that we, uh, one of the findings that we had uh, was that when you trace the circuit into the brain from this pheromone sensing organ in the nose, what we found was that the circuitry in the brain was striking the similar between males and females. And so what it really tells us is that um, architecturally similar circuits can give rise to different behaviors in the two sexes, depending on sensory modulation. And this is an interesting and important uh, fundamental principle because it really tells us that there's really a spectrum of behavior in the wild as well as in humans. 
and the and categorizing really the, the variability into discrete categories is not really how biology works and that essentially i think one one takeaway message from this is that there are many different types of behavior that and, and there are many ways to be any species and we should be a little more tolerant about the differences among individuals because all differences are valid uh, variations of behavior within the same species yeah that's really interesting because i think a lot of people have sort of asked the question that you and your colleagues were um, asking as well you know like different behaviors and what sort of like causes that so it's really interesting to sort of get like that scientific explanation so thank you for that um, so I wanted to kind of ask you, like, what do you think the end goal of your research is? Or do you even think that there is an end goal? The end goals are hard to predict. Um, mm -hmm. I think one of the nice things about research, at least our research program, is that it's a combination of hypothesis-driven research and curiosity-driven research. We try to go where the science takes us. Uh, but one of the, but every lab has a larger goal that they wish they could, you know, a larger question that they wish they could solve. One for us is trying to understand mechanistically what an emotion is, what feelings actually are. So these are psychological concepts that um, clearly are real. You know, you and I, we all feel emotions. We all feel love or anger or fear, but we don't really understand what the neurobiological basis of these emotions is. And one of the challenges in this, uh, in, in trying to understand this is depend, depends on what your level of analysis is. Of course, psychologists have now started using brain imaging in humans to try to understand neural correlates of these emotions. But what we really, uh, as a molecular scientist, my interest is to really understand at the very single cell level or at the circuit level, how changes in molecules and how changes and how influences of the environment play a role in um, specifying or in, in encoding emotions in the brain. And the answer to this question is, of course, many, many years away. But we think that studying behaviors that are closely associated with emotions, such as you know, social behaviors like parenting or aggression, gives us a, a, might give us insights into um, the rudiments of emotion in other animals. Uh, unconscious emotion, not necessarily the conscious feeling of joy or, or pleasure, but the um, uh, unconscious um, internal state that comes along with these different behaviors. And we hope, and many of these behaviors are very, uh, vary depending on the state of the animal. So males or females will behave, dif uh, will recruit the circuits differently, but the circuits get recruited differently depending on the age of the animal. So young animals behave very differently than older animals. Uh, adolescents behave differently than, um, than aged people. And so uh, by, by using all of these other factors and understanding how all of these other things in, impact a circuit for a specific behavior. We hope that eventually we can try to get um, a handle on this larger question of what emotions actually are. Yeah, I found that interesting because I also saw some research that depending on what hormone is present, like testosterone or estrogen, various different emotions mm -hmm. will be present. So mm -hmm. what exactly is happening in those neurological circuits when someone's expressing something like anger or sadness? Because mm -hmm. Those can also be self-inflicting and mm -hmm. not necessarily good for the species as, or that mm -hmm. organism as a whole. That's a great question. Um, we're still trying to understand how hormones influence these specific uh, behaviors. And in part, it's been a difficult question to answer because the receptors for these hormones, such as testosterone and estrogen, are present in many, many different parts of the brain, in many, many different cells. And many of those cells do different things. And that makes sense because 
these hormones, the function of these hormones isn't just to regulate a single behavior. They regulate a host of other functions. So for example, when, when uh, testosterone and estrogen sex hormones have effects not only on the behaviors that you express, but also on your metabolism. They affect how uh, your body temperature, your metabolism, whether, you're, uh, whether, you're, uh, whether your body is getting ready, for example, for childbirth. So all of these different functions are coordinately regulated. And so the challenge really is to understand how, is, uh, how these hormones are uh, impacting specific cells that are involved in specific functions. Um, and that's a program that um, many labs uh, are currently investigating. And it's, it's a great time to work on these questions because we now have genetic tools uh, to be able to uh, influence or change the expression of uh, these hormone receptors uh, and interrogate what they're actually doing in specific cells in the brain, uh, which we know to be involved in specific behaviors. So we're really coming uh, to, we're close to a solution to the uh, problem, but it's still, we still don't entirely understand why. What we do know for many years of research is that um, sex hormones essentially are steroid hormones that um, uh, bind to specific receptors in the brain, and these receptors change gene expression. So we think one of the ways in which hormones are influencing uh, neuronal firing and neuronal activity is by changing gene expression within neurons. We're still trying to understand how different uh, uh, gene expression in different neuronal types is regulated by the same hormone to lead to different outcomes. Yeah, I think it's really great that you and your lab um, are able to conduct like this really complex research that has like some really like valuable applications um, to all of our lives, especially because as science progresses, we need more answers to like problems that we're all facing. So uh, and I had a question about you regarding like, what sort of is like your motivation to like get up in the morning and go to lab and conduct research? Because I know for a lot of high schoolers, it gets really overwhelming to keep on dealing with like the same, like really complex, complicated material. Um, so what's kind of like your motivation? I think it's just the thrill of the chase. It's, we don't really know that much. The types yeah. of questions that we're asking, we, we do not know what the answers will even necessarily look like. And that's exciting. Uh, and I understand that it can be very daunting to, it can be overwhelming to, to also uh, think that way. But the nice thing about science is that it's a collaborative effort. When you go to work every morning, there are five or 10 other people around you who have the same goals or similar goals. And uh, it, it really is encouraging when you see other people achieve things around you, which you thought were not possible 10 years ago. Uh, and so I think being in the right environment and always being around people who are smarter than you is always a good idea. Uh, and that's what has helped me a lot. So I've always been surrounded by people who I think are smarter than me, and that's really a source of inspiration. And it really, uh, you know, they they motivate you as well. So because it's a collaborative effort, um, science is really, except for a very few fields, science is really not done in isolation. You know, there's there's a few pure mathematicians and physicists who can work in isolation, uh, but biology as a whole is really a collaborative effort, and it takes many people to really understand the problem. And when you get different perspectives, it really makes you more enthusiastic. Yeah, I, I understand that because I feel like research into the unknown, you run into a lot of hurdles and having that team can help push you forward. I wanted to ask this question just in general for all, all our listeners and ourselves, but do you have any general advice for aspiring researchers or doctors to help push them when they encounter this unknown? I think one uh, piece of advice that I got when I was young was to really try and identify mentors and, you know, take advice from people who 
have gone through that before because it's 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 sometimes i think it was comforting to me to know that other people who were, who had reached where i wanted to reach had gone through similar struggles uh and to get you know to really uh people who've gone through it know what it is like to go through something so it's always good to have a good set of mentors who you who you respect and if you don't have people around you who you can identify as mentors people like me email me you know email people who uh you respect who you may not know directly and many you'll be surprised at how many people will respond and give you a little bit of advice the other thing i I'd, i'd say is that um you know i think i think be kind to yourself there's a lot of information out there uh and it's it's you don't need to le- learn everything all at once it's a slow process of learning and try and find something that really interests you find a passion because that's essentially a lot of my training went into trying to identify something i was really really interested in and that takes a lot of trial and error and so try lots of things and see what you like um uh so i th- i'd say you know be adventurous try new things find good mentors i think that's the advice i'd give people okay um that was pretty inspiring and i'll definitely take that advice so i think that wraps it up i don't want to hold you too long cuz the work you're doing does seem very important So thank you so much. It's been helpful and I'm sure both us and our listeners learned a lot. Do you have any other last words that people may want to hear about your research or yourself? But I think, you know, I I I always defer to, you know, people I admired when giving out last words. I'm too young to be giving out, you know, uh profound sentences, but uh Linus Pauling, who's a very very famous and uh, uh chemist and um, scientist once said that the best way to have ask a good question is to ask lots of questions uh, so don't be afraid to ask questions uh, there is no such thing as a bad question or a, a silly question you'll be surprised at how much science has not answered yet and so every question can be a good question and ask lots of questions okay thank you yeah i definitely think we're all going to be very inspired by this because it's great to see you um conducting this really complex research at such a high level And so I'm sure all of our listeners and us too uh we're really going to take your advice uh to heart. But yeah, thank you so much Dr. Bamamoku. Uh we really appreciate appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um so yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, comment on our posts and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you guys again next week. Bye. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Let me stop.